Hello, everybody. This is Ray Renati, your friend in podcasting. How y'all doing, yos? Hope you're doing well. I'm doing pretty well. Uh, this is like the fourth time I've tried to record this intro because I can't get the sound levels right. Boy, oh boy, man, I need a technician and I ain't got one. It's just little old me here and, and I have a loud voice and it modulates all over the place and I have like a regular old microphone and I don't have a regular studio with padding everywhere and it's just me staring at my computer screen and I think I'm going to go insane. I'm going insane. I'm going insane. Yeah, I'll be here all week. How are y'all doing? I hope you're not going insane. But today, folks, we have the most wonderful second part of my interview with my Pally Wally, my friend, my uh, one of my greatest mentors in the world of acting and directing, Mr. Ed Hooks. Ed Hooks is the go-to man internationally for acting for animators. He, he invented the job. He teaches. He teaches animators how to make their characters act like real people, <laughs> even if they're cartoons. Okay, you get it. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And Ed also has so much knowledge about acting and Stanislavski and uh, the, the theater today, and we talk about all these things. And I'm going to divide this into uh, probably three more parts. I already put part one up. This one would be two hours long if I left it as is, so I'm going to uh, reduce it to uh, eh, 20, 30 minutes and do like three or four parts. So that you may listen. Uh, I ain't no Joe Rogan. I can't put up no two-hour podcast, three-hour podcast. No siree. Well, I am better than Joe Rogan, but people don't know that yet. I'm not as rich as Joe Rogan. Not even close. Holy smokes. Did you hear that Kim Kardashian actually surpassed Joe Rogan on Spotify? Ooh, ooh, ooh. That's kind of, uh... Hmm. I wonder how Joe Rogan feels about that. Kind of scandalous in a way. No? I think it is. Anyway, um... I am going to be performing in the, uh... The play Frankenstein, not young Frankenstein, just regular old Frankenstein. Such a great show. If you happen to be in the Bay Area and you want to see Frankenstein, well, you can see it uh, Friday, November 11th, 2022, through Saturday, November 19th. That's right, only five performances Friday, Saturday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. It's amazing, we do so much work for only five performances, but it's a junior college, and although the show is going to be amazing, because we had our first run-through last night of Act One, and I was kind of blown away by how good this is going to be. I guess there just aren't enough people to see it, so they can't do it more than a week. Although I guess when they have a musical, when they have musicals, when they do musicals, they have regular, you know, three, four-week runs, but... Uh, they just don't get enough people in for the play. So come and see uh, Frankenstein at Ohlone College, November 11th through the 19th. Ohlone College, O-H-L-O-N-E, college. Like the Ohlone 
Indians, the Native Americans from the San Francisco Bay Area. Ah, uh, yes. Um, so this production of Frankenstein originally starred the the movie star. Uh, what the hell is his name? <laughs> Benedict Benedict Cumberbatched. No, I said that wrong. Jeez. You think I'd be prepared? You would think. Yeah. Benedict, I, I said it kind of right. Benedict Cumberbatch. And then um, the other guy is John, uh, Johnny Lee Miller. Now, what's cool is when they did it, and you can, if you search you and hunt it down, you can find these online. You can find both versions, but they alternated uh, the creature and the Victor Frankenstein characters <clears throat> every other night. And that's super interesting to see how they, they each did them differently. And they did them both very differently, and it's really cool. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is a, is a super talented dude. Man, he really is. Yeah, so uh, this adaptation was by Nick Deere, based on the novel by Mary Shelley. And uh, it's not... It's not your father's Frankenstein. This is uh, updated. It's really cool. You're not going to see, uh, like, your old lab and, you know, like Herman Munster-style Frankenstein. You're going to see the steampunk Frankenstein. So check it out, November 11th, Ohlone College. All right, folks, that's enough of that. Without any further ado, Mr. Ed... Uh, when COVID set in, I stopped traveling. People, people stopped inviting me to travel. And so we set up this uh, video instruction site with a very, very modest uh, uh, fee structure. It's, it's $12.95 $12 for a month. And it's, it, you stop or start at any time. And um, and uh, we started making videos, and it's mainly it's just me sitting on a stool, talking into the camera, and uh, sometimes I'm I'm looking at uh, this is split screen, and we're showing uh, examples and clips and stuff, and I'm analyzing them, and um, it's the same uh, subject matter that I cover in a master class, and I wanted to have it available to uh, people who could not get to my master class, uh, number one. And, you know, people who live in, I get, it's funny, I, I get people in very odd countries and uh, in, in Africa and all kinds of places. And uh, they don't have access to uh, what I teach. And uh, so I wanted really to make it for them and uh, so we have on there right now 33 videos that are, uh, they range in length from five minutes to 25 minutes. And it's a really good resource. Um, and uh, Callie, the point I mentioned it is because Callie does you know, just, she's, she's the chief cook and bottle washer, you know? No, that, that's very, uh, 
Very interesting. So you teach your the content of your masterclass online on YouTube. Yeah. I didn't know that. And yeah. so what is uh, what is different about teaching animators acting than actors acting? Well, it's two different art forms. Uh, acting is uh, a performing art form and and animation is a, a visual art form. And so the um, uh, historically, going all the way back to the 1940s and earlier, what they do with animators who uh, wanted to learn more about acting is they tell them, go take an acting class. And, uh, and then the animator would show up in, in an acting class. But now the acting classes, as you know, are training people to be on stage or in front of cameras uh, and to interact with an audience. Animators, most of them are pretty shy. Uh, if you try to get them up in front of people, they, they get really nervous. Um, uh, and um, this was what I discovered when I first I went into um, Pacific Data Images, DreamWorks, when they were working on uh, ants there in Palo Alto. And, uh, you know, half of the people in the class, after about three sessions, they wouldn't come to class uh, because I was trying to teach them the same way that I was teaching actors. At that time, I really believed that there was only one way to learn about acting. And uh, that you had to get up and act, you know, like in scene study. Yes. And uh, so I went in there and I, I assigned them roles and gave them sides and told them how to rehearse and uh, doing little improvisations and all this. And it was uh, a failure. It didn't work. And um, they gave me a PDI. Do you remember the guy, uh, Ben, uh, uh, Ken Bielenberg, by chance. Do you remember a guy named Ken Bielenberg? I think so. He was he was an animator. Yeah. Uh, yes, I do. Except remember. I did not know at that time he was an animator. He, actually, I did a short film with him that he made. Yes, that's yeah. him. Yeah. Okay. And so what happened was all the time that Ken Bielenberg was in that acting class in Palo Alto, I did not know as I didn't know with a lot of people, you don't know what they do in the daytime to, to put food on the table. So it was one night after class in Palo Alto, we were out walking to our cars and he said, um, he said, listen, he said, I work for an animation company and we're making a movie. He said, well, we never made a movie. We've only made commercials. And um, he said, I told him about you, and, and we were wondering if you would be willing to come and teach an acting class on site over at the studio. And not knowing any better, I said, sure. And, uh, and so that's how I wound up over there with a box of scripts, and I was just going to teach him an acting class. And it laid a big egg. Uh, it didn't work. And um, uh, yeah, and uh, the, the, the human resources people took me to lunch and, um, and told me it's not working. And I said, I, I'm sorry, I was really embarrassed. Yeah. Uh, and I said, I don't know why it's not working. And they said, they said, well, Ken, 
tells us that you're a good actor, a good acting teacher, and we do believe him. They, and so if you want to try something else, if you want to experiment, we'll keep paying you. But uh, you got to stop doing what you're doing. <laughs> and yeah. And so, and so I got the animators back together. There was about 30 of them. I got them back together. And I said to him, I said, look, I said, I think I know something about acting, but I obviously just don't know anything about animation. And I said, you got to show me how you do what you do. And I need to shut up until I understand that. And then maybe I can figure out some way uh, to bring what I know in a way that'll be useful to you. And so they gave me a chair with rollers and I went from animator to animator and sat with them while they were animating the movie. And, uh, and then I had this big aha moment which was that they did not have a present moment. Actors work in the present moment. You, uh, you know, it's, uh, and also actors work a lot on stress control because it's very, very stressful to be up in front of hundreds or thousands of people and uh, trying to be relaxed and natural and being in the moment. And uh, so actors work a lot on sensory isolation, on focus, all this stuff. Well, animators, in the first place, they're not the actor. The actor is the animated character. So from the audience's perspective, the actor is Mickey Mouse, not Walt Disney. So the animator's relationship to the character is one of empathetic direction. So uh, they look at the animated character like a puppet. Uh, and so, so this leads to a certain objectification that's a problem because the animators then feel like they are imposing all of the acting, less all of the acting moves on the character. And so I come along and I say, okay, you need to understand acting theory, but you don't need to be training to be in a movie with Robert De Niro. And so once I had that insight, uh, I worked out a way to teach this with, with, uh, with uh, lecture discussion. And I reduced acting down to about 10 or seven or 10 uh, essential principles. And then I started showing clips from films to illustrate these principles, you know, when acting is right, it looks like this. And when it's wrong, it looks like that. Would you show and, uh, films with, with people or with animated characters? Both. Okay. Both. And meanwhile, this was a learning curve for me because I didn't know anything about animation. I was a regular consumer. You know, I, I knew about Bambi's mother uh, I knew Dumbo. I mean, I, but I did not know anything. And here they were making this movie with Woody Allen and it was computer animation. And it turns out that Ants was only the second computer animated movie ever. Uh, the first one was Toy Story. So it was just plain fool's luck that I wound up in there, I had, this is not because I was so smart 
and I chose it. I fell into this thing. And then uh, because I screwed it up and because Ken Bielenberg, uh, turns out he was in charge of visual effects for this movie. So he had a position over there. He wasn't just an employee. So they listened to him. Uh, all of this was lost on me. I can't take credit for any of this. I just went along for the ride. And, uh, and it turned out, Ray, that nobody before me had tried to apply classical acting theory to animation. Nobody. There was no literature. There was no books. There was nothing. Animators had just been told, go take an acting class. And I right away figured out because I screwed it up. No, no. I'm bringing the acting class in here and it doesn't work. They don't need that because they're not actors. And so because of my skill set, because I had been teaching for so long and had acted for so long, it, I was able to take my skill set and apply it to a new discipline. And, and I just, I was the first one at the parade. Uh, so after that, after that movie came out, I, I wrote the first edition of Acting for Animators, which which I took it to my regular because I had written four or five books, you know. Yes. I took it to my publishers and said, here, I got this book for animators and they didn't want to publish it. Nobody wanted to publish the book. And what they said was they said, Ed. They said, there's already a lot of books on acting. The animators can look at those books. Your book isn't special. And I said to them, look, these people are different. They don't have a present moment. They're doing something different. And I finally, what finally got the book published was an editor at a company called Heinemann in uh, New Hampshire. This, uh, this woman, she was a, a gay woman, and her partner, her romantic partner in life, was an animator. And this story came back to me later on, is that it was pillow talk. She was telling her partner in bed about the submissions she had gotten during the day and whatnot, and she mentioned, yeah, this guy wrote a book for acting just for animators. And her partner said, oh, that's a good idea. She said, oh, really? Yeah, it's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and so Heidemann went ahead and published the book. They gave me, it was ridiculous. They gave me almost no advance. I think it was like $1,000, something like that. And the, for that, they wanted, they wanted 25 illustrations, they wanted a CD-ROM. They wanted, uh, oh, I can't tell you all the stuff they wanted. And I gave it to them. Why? Because I had gone that far with this thing. And I felt like, okay, I'm just going to get it published. I don't care. I'm just going to get it published. And, um, and, and that's really what happened. And during that process... I had another piece of crazy fool's luck. And that was because I was learning about animation while I was writing the book and while I was working over there 
at, uh, at PDI, uh, I was looking all the time at DVDs. I was buying DVDs like crazy and studying animated movies, trying to figure out what they were about. And I, I got one called The Iron Giant. Mm. All right. And I looked at this and I said, well, the acting in this thing is really good. This is a really good movie. And, uh, and I said, okay, well, I, it's easy for me to find movies that are bad. Here's one that's good. And so I need to uh, make sure that the people who read this book I'm writing uh, take a look at this movie because here's one that they can look at and, and say, okay, this works. And so I, I did an analysis of, uh, oh, I don't know, eight or 10 scenes in this movie. And uh, I wanted to make sure that I hadn't said anything wrong about the analysis. And so I sent them to the director, who I did not know. I had no idea who he was. All I knew was the movie had been released at Warner Brothers. And so I sent this thing to Brad Bird, care of Warner Brothers, and uh, in Hollywood, in Burbank. And, and as it turned out, that movie had failed at the box office. And Brad Bird, this was his first movie. This he is Iron working, Giant you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And he had been working on The Simpsons. Uh, and uh, this was his first movie. And uh, he uh, really responded favorably to my analysis of this thing. And he contacted me and said, yeah, you've got this right. You know, you what you've got here is good. And... And so I, I said, oh, yeah, I made a couple of adjustments there, character names and stuff. But the essence of it was it was okay. At which point I asked him if he would write a forward to the book. He said, okay, sure. And he mm -hmm. did. He wrote a short forward to the book. And then when I sent him the manuscript, which included his forward and everything, uh, he also saw the artwork and he hated it. Uh, he did not like the cover of the book. He said it was amateur. And I said, look, they're giving me a thousand dollars and they, you know, I've had to go to an animation student. I, I'm doing the best I can here, you know, as at which point he, by that time had gone from Warner brothers to Pixar. And so he told one of the artists over at Pixar to do a cover for me at, with no charge. And so somebody, I don't even know who did it, did the first cover at Pixar because Bad Bird said, if you're going to go with this terrible cover that you've got designed here, I, I'm going to pull my forward out of here. I can't, I don't want to be in a book with a terrible cover like that. <laughs> and, and so yeah and so and so we that's how the first edition of the book got printed by Heinemann and then they and it was pretty immediately the response was favorable just almost overnight and even though this was the first thing I became the go-to person for the topic of acting for animators. In fact, and here's one more thing to tell you, Ray, and then I'll get off of this because it's a hell of a story. 
I got into trouble with the director of the Iron of um, of uh, Ants, uh, who I never met in person. I still to this day had never met him. Kidding. But he, wow. um, after I finished with um, working on the movie, I had a a, a a CV, a little promotional thing that I put together, thinking maybe some other animated movie might want to. Uh, hire me you know there's a lot of them in the bay area and i said somebody might want to do this so i put together a flyer and as a courtesy i sent it over to them at uh, at pdi uh, just to show them what i had done and to thank them for the opportunity of working on this movie well the director called me up and yelled at me because what i had put on there was that i was a consultant for acting and that's what I thought I was, because uh, I was teaching acting, I was giving acting principles, and I was sitting with the animators while they were animating, and they were asking my opinion about scenes. What should the character do here? What should the character do there? I thought that that's what I was doing, but the director thought I was... Uh, there. Okay. Yeah. So um, I... Um, uh, I thought that I was a consultant for acting and uh, I didn't mean to make this guy angry. Uh, and, uh, it, it, but it was, a, you know, it was a fuck up. And so I said, okay, well, I'll call myself something else then if it bothers you that much. And, um, and that's when I made up the term acting for animators. It didn't exist this term and then I got the, I went ahead and bought the domain name. Uh, nobody had ever done it. I was there. Uh, and so then I had actingforanimators.com. That became the name of the book. And, um, and I was off to the races. That's how all this started. And, uh, and it became the tail that wags my creative dog. Uh, and so by now, this was 20 years ago. And by now, yeah, I, you know, Ray, I've, 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 I've been in over 35 countries and, and there's been uh, over 200,000 students, animation students. I've, I've taught all over the place. And uh, now the book is going to be in a, you know, it's in a fourth edition right now and it'll soon be in a fifth edition and um, and it's published by Rutledge, uh, which is a, a very big educational publisher. And uh, so that's the story of how this came to be. But I, I, t I cannot take, what's funny to me about it is that I can't take any credit for it. All I can take credit for is that I didn't walk away from it yeah. uh, because I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, they gave me the opportunity to experiment and I could just as easily have said, you know, thanks, but no thanks. This is just not for me. But there was something about it that I knew was was exotic. All this business with animation, and um, and I, I recognized that there was an opportunity there. And uh, it turned out that that's exactly what what I was looking at. And that's why nobody's ever been able to copy me. There's been all kinds of people that have tried. They've set up acting for animators classes, but they make the same mistake I did, which is they try to teach the animators like actors. 
they get them up doing exercises and uh, and stuff. It's acting class stuff. And uh, it may be fun, but it doesn't teach them about structure. It doesn't teach them the connections between thinking, emotion, and physical action. It doesn't teach them action in pursuit of objective, overcoming obstacles. It doesn't teach them what an objective is. Uh, Acting exercises are really designed to relax and to focus stage actors. That's that's why Viola Spolin invented these things. Yeah. And um, and so when people bring in other other teachers, that's usually what they get. And um, and I I just I, my I'm in a niche niche. Is that the a word niche. niche? Niche niche. I think you can say it either niche. way. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a good spot for uh, a little short break. So we'll hear Ed continue here in a moment. First, I would like to introduce you to our sponsor, Air. The show is sponsored by Air. The air you breathe, the air you love. Air, pick it up today. Anyway, it sounds to me like um, what it reminds me of is after I've been reviewing these, uh, the history of Stanislavski, when he first started, he uh, he kind of treated his actors as though they were puppets. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think he backed off of that because he got so many people angry and they quit and had nervous breakdowns and things. But it doesn't hurt if you do that to little animated characters. Um, yeah. So they're more. Well, so so it sounds like it sounds like the you're training them in the principles of acting, but they're actually sort of the directors of these characters uh they need to understand uh, they need to understand what good acting is but they're more the director of it they're not the one who actually is doing it but one of the things that's happened with the computer animation if you contrast if you have you got somebody there no i just had to check my screen yeah i'm fine if you contrast computer animation to hand-drawn, you know, old traditional animation, the kind of stuff they did with Bugs Bunny and Porky Pig and all this, those early animators, the early Disney animators, were really like animation directors. They And they, they had a sense of, of uh, authorship. Many of them created the character in the first place. And then what they would do is they would animate this one character from the beginning to end of, of a story from the opening credits to the, to the, the end. Um, in the world of computer animation, there are half a dozen people in the pipeline that have their hands on character performance before it gets to the animator. And this next edition of uh, Acting for Animators will be the first time I've really taken this on, uh, head on. But uh, in the pipeline, the typical pipeline, whether it's a computer game or whether it's a movie, uh, the animator doesn't usually start until they have a character rigged, what they call rigged. And this is where they put all those control points, thousands of control points, they first make the puppet, 
Then they take pictures of it 360 degrees and they put it into a computer and then they rig it. They put the controls in there so that you can control eyelids and eyebrows and fingers and hands and stuff. And then they give it to the animator. The problem is that by then, number one, there was the screenwriter. Number two, there was storyboard artists. Storyboard people have a lot of control over what characters do. Uh, then you've got the dialogue recording. Uh, in, the, in the United States, they record dialogue first. This is the reason why you go to an animation studio and all the animators are wearing headphones. It's because they're listening to dialogue and then they're making their animation fit the dialogue. Mm -hmm which number one gives a false impression. It makes it seem like the words are the most important thing. And of course they're not. The, the, the our sense of sight is more powerful than our sense of hearing. This is one of the things I teach them uh, in fact, but you've got the, uh, the, 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 the dialogue recording and they've had their hands on uh, the performance of the character. You may have had motion capture, performance capture, there's all kinds of stuff that happen before the animator gets there. And a lot of times the performance in the broad strokes of the performance have already been established. They're baked into the cake. And this is different than it used to be with Bugs Bunny and, and the Roadrunner, where the animator could call all the shots. And so what needs to happen and what I'm doing with the fifth edition of acting for animators is I'm trying to expand the readership and my, and my student base to include all these other people. Hmm. Uh, I'm telling them in this book that they need to get everybody on the same page, that it is not enough just to train the animators about acting. They need to have the storyboard artists and the dialogue recording and the motion capture directors. Everybody needs to understand acting theory. Yes. At least on a basic level. And uh, so that's, that is, that brings you up to date on where I am with this thing. It's, uh, it's been, I continue to learn. I continue to develop. Uh, and during all this, the industry itself, the technology has become more and more sophisticated. They're doing virtual reality now. They got all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and I have been there at this party. It's a, um, and so I, I come in and what I am is an authority on acting theory. And so since the days you and I worked together, in scene study, I have been forced in a way to study acting in a way quite different from I did, the way I did when I was simply teaching acting to, anime, to actors. Uh, I understand the theory of it now in a very fundamental way, going all the way back to Aristotle. I mentioned this to you before that for me, actually what I've done is I have gone through the same process that Stanislavski went through. 
And I figured out a lot of the same things that he figured out, but I figured them out on my own. So most times when acting teachers are teaching classes, they'll cite Stanislavski as their source. I don't. I almost always will cite Aristotle. And uh, because that really is it. It's really it. Stanislavski codified some of what Aristotle said for theatrical purposes. Also, Stanislavski was, you know, he wanted to do what, you know, Eleonora Dusa. You and I have talked about Eleonora Dusa. Yes, I bought that uh, book about her. I haven't read it yet. It's sitting there on my pile of books. <laughs> yeah, called Dusa. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, and that's a very good uh, uh, thing. Are you familiar with the Del Sartre? D-E-L-S-A-R-T-E? I've heard the name. I can't remember exactly. But it's okay. Obvious. He was a, a French 19th century. He was born like in 1811, 1812. Uh, there was him and there was a guy in um, Italy uh, named Moretti, I believe his name was. And, and these guys, they were the really like the first acting teachers. And, they, and this was like 1840, 1850. And what they did was they worked out poses. So if you were uh, having a scene where you were supposed to be upset or distressed or angry, they would tell you, you stand this way with your feet here, you put your right hand over your chest and you put, you do, you, uh, they, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I've seen those old books with those pictures in them. Okay. Yeah. Well, the most famous actor of the day was a woman named Sarah Bernhardt. Yes. And she uh, applied a lot of this to her work. She was very theatrical, very, uh, with theatrical flourishes and poses and all this. And then what happened was Eleonora Dusa came along and Dusa was self-taught. She did not go with Del Sartre and Moretti. She, uh, her thing was she found the power in silence, in stillness, and so she would make the audience wait. She would stop. And there were, she could control an audience with stillness, with silence, moments, filling a moment with thought, with emotion. So she became the antithesis of Sarah Bernhardt, the opposite of Sarah Bernhardt. And... Um, and the two of them became great competitors. Well, during that period, Stanislavski and his fellow young actors, they were just in their 20s at the time, when, when Eleonora Dusa toured uh, Russia, they saw her work and were blown away. And they did try to talk to her about how she did what she did, because it was a mystery. Nobody had ever done this. How do you do this? And she, probably because she didn't know how she did what she did, because she was self-taught, but she wouldn't tell him. At any rate, she wouldn't tell him. And whether it was because she felt like she was a great actress and didn't need to talk about these things, at any rate, she, could, she wouldn't tell him. Yeah. 
And part of the reason why they set up the Moscow Art Theater, Nemirovich Denchenko and Stanislavski, was they were going to try to figure out a naturalistic kind of acting like Eleonora Dusa was doing. And so they started all these experiments with emotion and stillness and all these things. And that's how they got into Chekhov, who was a new playwright at the time. Uh, all of it fits together. All the pieces to this puzzle start coming together. And then Stanislavski's people went to New York, and that's where they were picked up by Strasberg. And he turned it into the method. Yeah. And what happened was, over the years, Stanislavski changed his mind. So if you, about it, he, he first thought, when he first started, he, he thought that if he could get the emotion right, that the correct action would come out of that. But by the end of his career, he thought that if you commit fully to the pretend circumstances, uh, play the action fully, that whatever emotion is supposed to be there will be there. He totally reversed himself. And this yeah. is the reason why when people ask me about what books to read, I, I now tell them, read this one, this new one on method. I mean, this is as good as any I've ever read, but, it's, uh, but don't read Stanislavski because number one, he was a bad writer. He couldn't write. <laughs> and, uh, and number two, he changed his mind. Yeah. And so you'll just get confused right? Uh, if you start reading Stanislavski, because he says one thing in one book and another in another. Yes. Yeah. So at first he, he was trying to codify how to bring about specific emotions, because those were the ones that he thought were correct for the moment in the, in the performance, whatever it happened to be. Yeah. And later he said, could commit yourself to the circumstances and of the of the moment of the play and whatever emotions come out are the right ones if they come exactly. out at all and then the exactly. audience will buy in it doesn't matter whatever they are necessarily that's exactly right yeah now to tie this in with animation and by the way we're about to come to the end of one hour are they going to cut us off no i paid this time so uh, oh. they're never going to cut us off Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. No, 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 be sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's just like 10 bucks. I didn't want that happening again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, just to, uh, to connect a couple of dots for you here. In the early days of animation, back when you had the Disney people making a cartoon like Steamboat Willie with Mickey Mouse and all, they believed that if you could make an animated character express emotion, seem to have emotion, that that was good acting. Uh, and so that's the reason why you get so many of those cartoon characters that are over-the-top emotional. Yeah. Now, Walt Disney, because they did not have act literature, the only thing that was available for a short time was the Boleslavsky uh, book, um, but animators, what they did was they copied the um, silent films and they copied vaudeville and they copied the English music halls. Um, and that's the reason there's all that uh, slapstick. Uh, 
in those early cartoons. Uh, so this is something that has been a holdover that goes all the way to the, to the current day. There still are a lot of animators and a lot of them are directors who believe that if you can make an, a, a character seem to have emotion, that that's good acting. I have come along. One of the things that I brought to this party is I've tried to get them to understand that acting is not actable. I mean, the emotion is not actable in itself. You can't act emotion. That emotion tends to lead to physical action and that acting is doing. So I tell them, no, you should be able to ask your character what your character is doing. And that if you have an emotion, you're probably going to do something about that emotion. Mm -hmm. So if you have the emotion of fear, for example, you may confront the thing that's threatening you. You may run away. You may get your pepper spray out. You may look for a cop. All those are actions that come that are motivated by the emotion itself, but you don't act fear. And in those early cartoons, if a character is afraid, you see their knees knocking together and, yes. and their teeth chattering. <laughs> and so this is the world of animation that I am in currently. Uh, yeah. So, so a lot of these people, this is new information for them. They still think that emotion is actable. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I, I, some of those old ones, I do like them for a while because it is over the top and it's, it is kind of amusing to watch these old, especially like the original Bugs Bunny, uh, you know, the old ones where everything mm -hmm. is absolutely over the top. Sometimes it's really violent, uh, which I could never really understand. What's all that extreme violence in the early animation? What's that about? Slapstick. Because they don't pay the consequences, say, you get a character that gets an arrow shot through their head and they don't die. Uh, you <laughs> yeah. know, it's just a fade away and then they're, then they're back and they're healed. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like Roadrunner or Daffy Duck. Roadrunner. Roadrunner is a very good example. That's one of my favorites. Wiley Coyote, his, his thing. I call these characters single adjective characters. Uh, myself. I just made this up. But like Donald Duck, Donald Duck is a, he, his, his default emotion is anger. Yeah. He gets angry at everything. Doesn't matter what it is. And he starts, he, he gets almost apoplectic. And with that, <laughs> and, and in fact, I tell the animators, as I tell them, I say, look, if you were to freeze frame Donald Duck in the middle of one of those anger fits, and ask him what he's doing, he probably wouldn't be able to tell you because he's too angry. But you need to know that he probably is frustrated because he's not being understood. And probably his objective is to get people to listen to him. That's probably what he's doing. Mm -hmm. uh, but what we see is him going apoplectic. <laughs> <laughs> I um my a friend of mine from grammar school, well, elementary school, his name is Tony Anselmo. He's the 
current voice, I still think he is, of, of Donald Duck. Mel Blanc took him under his wing and taught him Donald Duck. Really? Yeah, it's actually a difficult thing to learn to do it perfectly. It takes a few years. Oh, sure. With tons of practice, yeah. Uh, so he's the voice of Donald Duck currently, and I guess he's probably teaching one or two people how to do it so it can get passed on. I couldn't they never want to lose the correct Donald Duck. I couldn't do it. I took a, uh, in my acting days in Los Angeles, I took a, a voice class with a woman named Joni Gerber. I believe Joni Gerber is dead now, but I took her, she had a house up on Mulholland Drive. And I sat there in her living room and took this class. And she was very successful. That's why she lived on Mulholland Drive. Yeah. She was very successful uh, doing cartoon voices. And I remember sitting on the sofa and watching this woman create the voice of a, of a gerbil, okay? And she had a microphone there and she created the voice of a gerbil. And after she had done that, she created the voice of the gerbil's wife. <laughs> And it was different than the gerbil, but it was clearly another gerbil. <laughs> and then, then she continued by creating three gerbil children. So amazing. And each of them were gerbils, but they each of them were different than the adult gerbils. And she did all this while I was sitting there watching. And I thought to myself, I'm never going to be able to do that. It, I, I knew that I was, I'm never going to be able to do that. That is a very special talent. Uh, and, and people now, you know, I get people to ask me, oh, I want to do cartoon voices. How do I do it? How do I get into that? And I, I just generally tell them, you know, good luck. Because uh, there's a very small handful of people that do the most of the work because they're like Joni Gerber and they can do that. They can create five characters in a half hour and um, have them all be of the same family, but each one of them distinct. And it's a real skill. <laughs> it's a, it's a very re real skill. It's difficult. And the, the thing that I think is so difficult about it is they have to remain consistent. They can't, yeah blend into one another and then they have to be able to recreate them maybe week after week and remember exactly how they did that character the week before and it has to be exactly the same exactly yeah. when, when i used to stand in the kitchen i live in an eichler without walls and my kids used to watch cartoons all the time animated mm -hmm. shows i would be listening and i would hear the same voice actors over and over again, they would do different characters for different TV shows, and they're all slightly different. I could yep. tell it was the same actor, and every week, every episode, it would be exactly the same, and it would never blend into the other character from the other show. Yep. And that is so difficult to do. Uh, of course it is. Yeah, and that's why there are so few well-paid voice actors. Because Not only it's, that, it's, Ray, not only that, when you do on-camera work, people are there all day. Yeah. When, when you do voice work, they, they, they have to rent a recording studio unless they've got it on site, you know, at a studio, at a, at a uh, you know, on a movie studio or something. 
but they do this by the hour. Uh, you show up for a voiceover job or to do something and they've, maybe they're going to be in there for two hours, maybe. Mm-hmm. And the people that are really good at this are able to just, they, they, some of the direction that you get is I, it's almost otherworldly. You'll get direction because the directors don't often know how they'll say, one of my favorite directions that I received ever in a voice thing was a director said to me, um, can you, can you, uh, you pick it up, Ed, but keep that intimate quality. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, more energy, but keep that in, that intimate quality. Yeah. And it's all voice. It has nothing to do with anything physical. Yeah. Although you need to do things physical, but no one's going to see it. Yeah. You know, uh, Maybe you can answer this because it's something I've always wondered. Like when, when you watch one of these big Disney films, and then one that comes to mind immediately is Robin Williams as the genie in yeah. Aladdin. Are the animators watching him on a video as they animate? Because the character uh, uh, has so much in common with Robin Williams' actual physicality. I, I always had the feeling that they're seeing his face and they're replicating whatever they s- see while he's doing the recording because so much of it looks looks like Robin Williams. Yeah, and the answer is yes. Okay. Uh, the the animator who did Aladdin, uh, I forget his first name, but his last name is Goldberg, uh, and he's a Disney animator, and uh, I have met him on multiple occasions. At, uh, at events. As a matter of fact, I had dinner with him one time. He sat next to me and we talked. Anyway, uh, they absolutely, when they have people, these celebrity, here's what it is, is that it, it contrasted to Japan. In Japan, they record the voices after the animation and they don't use voice performers as celebrities, as marketing tools. Uh, in Hollywood, they they don't you don't need celebrity voices. There's plenty of people who could do the voices, uh, but they use the celebrities, Tim Allen and all these people, because it, they're they're promotable. Uh, Tom Hanks, and then they put their name over the. Uh, uh, so a lot of people think that the characters are just a product of those voiceover performers, which is really not true. Um, uh, but yes, they videotape the voiceover recording sessions, uh, the dialogue recording sessions, and they absolutely refer to those. They use them as what they call a, a reference, video reference. So they don't they don't trace it. They don't do the word for tracing it is called rotoscope, and they don't rotoscope. They don't trace it, but they use it as a reference. And, uh, and not only that, um, a lot of times those voiceover recording sessions, like the one with Robin Williams, a lot of that was improvisation and they just kept it. They put it in the movie. Um, I was, uh, I, I taught a couple of times at a, at a studio in, um, uh, Connecticut called blue sky 
And um, they had Ice Age. They did a movie, Ice Age. And um, Horton Hears a Who. Okay, so I was teaching there. I had a room full of animators. And we, uh, we pulled up a copy of Horton Hears a Who uh, to take a look at this thing. And uh, the, the movie had already been released. And I was just going to go back over some of the work on it. And, um, and uh, the G Jim Carrey did uh, the main voice of Horton in there. And so we're watching this movie and there's a jungle scene. And up in the trees, there's some monkeys and the monkeys start taking bananas. They pull the bananas off of the tree and they stick the bananas under their armpits <laughs> and then start doing this. They, yeah. And so it shoots the banana fruit out <laughs> of the peeling like a machine gun, uh -huh. you know? Yeah. So uh, I'm looking at this, at which point I paused it. I paused the movie. And I said to the uh, animators, I said, why, why are they doing that? And uh, one of the animators said, oh, that was something that uh, old crazy Jim Carrey came up with at the voiceover session, at the dialogue recording. And I said, really? They said, yeah, 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 he did it. And we just thought it was fun. And I said, I said, so you just kept it in the movie? And they said, oh, yeah, I kept it in the movie. And I said, do you understand that this is not theatrically valid? That what you've got there is not, doesn't have a structure. There's no action, objective, conflict. It's just a gag. It's a gag. And it's funny because it's, because it's a gag. And I, and I said, I lecture them. I tell them, you got to do less of that kind of stuff. You're, you need to have structured scenes. And uh, don't just put stuff in there like that. But this is typical, and it answers your question about the influence of the voice people. They have a lot of influence, especially if they're stand-up comics, and uh, and they they go, the, the you know they start. What they do is they get at a voice recording session, and they start entertaining, doing a bit. You know, they do mm -hmm. an act. Yeah. For the for the people in the control room is the director, the producer. <laughs> um, excuse me. Sure. So what they do, they they start doing an act for the people in the control room, and um, and every and everybody feels like, oh great, we're aren't we all big time? Because <laughs> you have the big star Jim Carrey. Uh squirting the bananas out of his armpits. Oh, we got to keep that. Mm -hmm. That's a keeper. Yeah, so that's so I see a lot of this. Yeah. And uh Eric, Eric Goldberg, that was his first name. Uh. Eric Goldberg. He's a pudgy little guy, looks like Porky Pig. <laughs> and um yeah. Eric, if you're watching, we love you. Okay. Yeah. Eric Goldberg, oh, and uh, he likes to dress like a cartoon character. Oh, really? Uh, so he's all the time wearing very colorful outfits, and he wears suspenders. Yeah. Eric Goldberg, and the suspenders have Disney characters all over them. So he he walks the walk and talks the talk. He's a sweet man. You'll find him, if you Google him, you'll find him all over the place on the uh, internet. 
Eric yeah. Goldberg. Okay. <laughs> oh, I see him here. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I've seen this guy before. Yeah. 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 There's a lot. Uh, he did. He he does. He shows up at uh, festivals. That's why I've known him because I, I've run into him at festivals, and so they, uh, they, they. But I, I'm not a good friend. We don't hang out, but I. He knows me, and I know him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Here he has his uh, his animated shirt on and his his suspenders. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's all extremely interesting. So I have a question about this Japanese animation. My, my mm -hmm. son is really into this Japanese animation. I don't get it. I don't get why people like it. I forget what it's called. What, what is anime? This? Anime. What's the deal with that? Well, you know, it came from comic books. Uh, and the comic books are called manga, M-A-N-G-A. -A. Mm -hmm. And so really, anime is like comic books that move. And that's the reason why there's so much stillness in uh, anime, um, a, as opposed to Western animation, which is the characters are always gesticulating. Uh, anime demands more of an audience than Western animation. Uh, because if you think about it, like a comic book or a graphic novel, they'll show you an, a painting, a drawing of an image, a situation, and you sort of complete the acting in your head when you look at this. So what they've done is they've moved this into an animation but there still are these comic or graphic novel frames, one after the other after the other. And this causes the audience to have to do a lot of the work. And um, in Western animation, you just don't get that. They spoon feed you. I see. Maybe that's okay. why my son likes it. Yeah. And also they're, they're, um, they're more willing to be adventurous there uh, with the anime. A lot of it is uh, a lot of science fiction stuff. Uh, they're very big with the horror uh, genre with the, they show a lot more violence with the Western animation <clears throat> because they're trying to separate the audience from their money. They're careful not to scare children too much. I mean, even, even um, Walt Disney was not afraid to scare children, you know. Uh, but today's today's stuff is so watered down. Uh, it's so bland. Most of the Hollywood, they spend $200 million on a movie. And uh, they don't want to offend anybody. And, and what they'll do is they make a movie and they'll, whatever worked in the previous movie, they'll make sure to put stuff like that in this one. Uh, it's really, I can't, I, it's a whole big, uh, I get on a soapbox about it. What would be an uh, example? Oh, uh, an example of, of uh, like a watered down movie that could have had more conflict well, or more graphic. Almost any of the Pixar movies, uh, yeah. you can take, I mean, like frozen uh, and movies like that frozen. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, in frozen, let's take frozen. Uh, 
uh, Frozen has an antagonist called uh, Hans of the Southern Isle. And that character has no foreshadowing in the movie. So 15 minutes before the final credits roll, that character steps up and he says that he is a sociopathic murderer. Uh, and he has been ever since he first arrived on the scene. And his, his, what he wants to do is to kill Elsa and take over the kingdom. That's been his plan all along. So when I, and this is 15 minutes before the final credits. So we've watched the whole movie. So what I did when I saw this, I had the DVD and I went back and I looked at every scene that that character was in, even if he was standing on the periphery, even if he wasn't the main one, because this means that all this snow and ice uh, interrupted his plan. He had a plan is what he said. Um, but if you look at that character, he's just a rag doll. Now, I have learned that the, the reason for this is because they changed antagonists in the middle of production. Oh. So in the beginning, you know, the whole Frozen is based on the, the uh, folktale, the Snow Queen. And it really is supposed to be a competition between those two sisters. And the original antagonist and the way it worked in the book, the Snow Queen, was that Elsa was the antagonist. Uh, and I think the Disney marketing department got a hold of it or something and said, no, we can't do it this way. And they were already halfway through the movie and they changed to Hans of the Southern Isle. Um, this is another big difference between Western animation production and, and Japanese uh, that they do this. They start production on these movies, these big movies, before they've even got a complete script. They did the same thing with the movie Up. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. If you think about it, that movie is a hybrid. It's the first half of it is for adults, and the second half of it is for children. So turn back the clock. Walt Disney said, he said, I don't make movies for, he says, I make movies for the child in all of us. So when you watch a movie like Snow White or Pinocchio, ones that were made under Walt Disney's reign, you regress. When you watch Snow White, you become like 10 years old again. Same thing with, uh, with, with Pinocchio and, and uh, Dumbo and all. You become young. Yes. It's almost impossible to watch those movies with an adult mind. But now you take a movie like um, most recent one from Pixar is called Soul. And this is a adult, pretty much adult stuff until they get to this other world, which is a pre-life world where babies are assigned their uh, personalities and stuff. And at which point the characters become all appealing to children. Uh, in, in the movie Up, the first half of that movie deals with um, love, falling in love, courtship, marriage, uh, trying to have a family. They find out they cannot have children, so they make other plans for how to spend a life together. 
things they're going to do. They do spend many years together. The wife gets sick and she dies. And then the guy, uh, the, the Carl, uh, is grieving. And all of that is for adults. Little yeah. kids in the audience, they don't have any, they're not, they don't have the, they don't have the, the knowledge base to appreciate all this stuff about mortality in life. But then what happens is the house gets lifted into the air with all those balloons and it floats to South America to Paradise Valley. And here comes the talking dogs and the bird that eats chocolate and all this stuff. Now, all of this is for children. Yes, yes. Wow. So what you've got here is a hybrid. The first half for adults, the second half for children. And why do they do it? Because they're spending $200 million. You don't need to spend $200 million to make a movie, especially with the technology as it is today. So, and, so they uh, spend $200 million because they want to be able to attract children and their parents. Is that what it is? Exactly. So they have you to have justify, to. so they have to justify the amount of money. So they have to bring in it. everybody. You well, know what? Not, you know? not only that, Ray, here's how it works. At, at the guy that the head head guy at uh, Disney, he gets on the on the the phone on Zoom. And he talks to the people at Wall Street, the analysts, and he gives them the projections for the Disney company, which includes Pixar. And he tells them, we're going to have a movie that's released in, in, uh, in, in uh, uh, April, and then we'll have another one that's released in July, and then we'll have another one released in September, he's going to say, or how does it works? He's going to give them release dates for the next couple of years. Okay. And for Wall Street, this means good news. Okay. We're going to keep having a lot of movies, a lot of revenue from the Disney company, and the stock goes up. And this justifies the head of Disney. He collects a paycheck of about $65 million a year. Okay. That's what the president of Disney gets 65 million. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So he's a, a that, so, 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 okay. So then what happens is they don't have movies to fit into those slots that they've announced dates for. So really what should happen is you should have a story to tell, and then you should figure a way to make a movie out of this story. You should, you, you should, but, but the whole industry in the United States has to do with stock prices. And they don't even look at movies as movies anymore. They look at them as content. Uh, and, and, and they try to get, here, one more thing to tell you. They, um, before, before there were streamers, this is before Netflix, before all of that, the way that movies, you would take a movie, that a live action movie, and the rule of thumb was that a movie had to make five times its cost uh, in order to break even. Uh, so if a movie cost $1 million, it had to make $5 million at the box office. Now, why? Because when you go to the cinema and you pay them $10 to go see a movie, $5 of that stays with the people that own the cinema. 
and the other $5 goes back to the producer. And then they have to pay for uh, marketing and they have to pay for prints. If there's prints, they have to pay for, they might have actors that have profit points. They, they, oh, they got all kinds of stuff. They got overhead, they got this, they got that. And so the rule of thumb is that a movie has to make five times its cost. All right, fade out, fade in. You're spending now $200 million. This means that a movie has to make $1 billion at the, if it was just box office. Well, you're not going to make this at the box office. So what do they do? They have theme parks and merchandising and lunch boxes and T-shirts and towels. And, and then what they do is they call these movies tent poles and they split them off and they make a, a Broadway musical out of them. And then they have the music track and then they have the yeah. stage play. They get all of this. Then they have a sequel or two or three. Uh, the McDonald's and, Happy Meals. Yeah. McDonald's Happy Meals. And so all of it is a big merchandising behemoth. I see. And wow. the movie, the movie becomes fodder for a huge merchandising enterprise. That's what Hollywood is. Oh, That's what it's become. How sad. And let me say one more thing about this, because I'm sorry, like, this is a big deal with me. The, uh, I teach in acting that actors, artists are shamanistic, that your heritage as an actor goes back to shamans, goes all the way back to Mesopotamia, uh, nomadic tribes. The shamans have always been important to tribes, and the shaman's job is to help the tribe survive uh, with their sickness, if there's celebrations, if there's whatever is going on, if there's bad weather, a storm, a tornado. What The shaman's job is to be a connection between this tribe and the various gods or whatever. They become like a combination of a preacher and a doctor and all kinds of things. Well, I believe that this is the heritage of actors, is that your job is to talk to the tribe, to help the tribe survive. The problem I have with Hollywood is that they're not trying to make the tribe survive. They're trying to get the tribe to get its wallet out. And they're very good at it. And meanwhile, all you got to do is turn on CNN for 30 minutes and you realize that the, how much trouble the tribe is in. Yeah. And I know that this sounds idealistic. I, and I appreciate that, that I maybe I have my head in the clouds, but this is the reason why I teach. This is what causes me to keep going to teach actors and animators. And I tell them that they have a mandate to help the tribe in the same way even that a religious figure has a mandate that when you're telling stories, remember why the audience is there. They're there because they're looking for survival strategies. They're looking to see how this particular character deals with some situation, whether it's external, whether it's internal, uh, and, and then they, whether the character may succeed or fail, but they're gonna try. It's just like sitting around the campfire when we were primitives 
and talking about the hunt. It's the same deal. That's the structure of movies. And that's the reason why your audience is there. And I hear people say, well, I make the movies to entertain. And I tell no, forget that. We, we are hardwired by nature already to be entertained by storytelling because it's essential for our survival. Yes, yes. And, and your job is simply to be good at it. And, uh, and, and I, I spend so much of my life trying to sell this particular message to artists. And I tell them that, that being an actor or being an animator is not just something that's fun to do, but it actually is an honorable way to spend your life. But you need to understand what your mandate is. And your mandate is to help the tribe. You don't need to sell them stuff. And uh, uh, so this is a, an important um, supporting point for, for everything that I do. It's a supporting point in my books. And um, uh, I get frustrated with the, with the commercial world. Well, just so you know, maybe this will make you feel better, but uh, you used to tell us that all the time and it sunk in with me. And honestly, every time I am involved with anything, usually a play, I always think about that. Like, what are, what is the story we're telling and why are we telling it? And how do we want our audience to be affected? And what we, what do we want them to learn? Like every time I go on stage, like even if I'm having a bad day, yeah. I'm like, oh, I can't, how am I going to go out there and do this? Um, say, this isn't for me. This wow. is for the people out there. Uh, this is my gift to them, however it comes out. And I'm going to do See, I love I to hear that. I'm so, I'm so touched that you connect me in any way with that kind of motivation. And, uh, well, I, I, you know, there really is, it's, it's very touching to me. It's very moving. And I, uh, I I appreciate and admire that you do that. And that's, I believe that is the most productive and correct posture for an artist. And also makes and, it easier for the artist because we're human. Uh, you know, people don't realize, you know, we think people objectify you, of course, when you're up there or on the film, but you have to be able to to do it no matter what state you're in. Exactly. Uh, and so often what I've told myself, like when I've been ill or something, it's like my character, the char the, the person I am right now and the, the person that's going to be on stage is ill. People get ill. I'm human. And yeah. I'm going to tell this story in whatever way I can. And I'm going to. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And that's, and also, relief. that's uh, a relief. That's a relief. A yeah. huge relief. Yeah. It is a relief. And also it's <laughs> another perspective on this is that uh, is that the politicians will tell everybody why this group of people is better than that group, why this country is better than that country, why this God is better than that God. You know, that's what they do. But it is the artist's job to, to tell us why we're all the same. Yeah. Uh, that all of us, all humans everywhere in the world are exactly the same. Yes, that's that, true. You know, everybody's born the same way. Everybody dies the same way. You got different cultures. You got different 
habits, you got different things, but we all are born with the same capacity to express the same basic emotions. Uh, and we, each of us have our own individual strategies for survival that reflect our values. Emotion is defined as an automatic value response and it reflects your values. That's why one person will be afraid of heights and another person won't. You've got different values. Both of them have the emotion fear, but they are afraid of different things because of their values. And your job as an artist is, is to understand the character that you're playing. Don't, don't judge them. Uh, you know, everybody is the protagonist in their own life. Every character is the protagonist in his own life. There is no really no such thing as a villain. Right. Not in the world. Villains don't think they're villains. They think they're heroes. Yeah. And uh, that's what makes a villain so frightening because a villain's uh, choice of survival strategies may include murder or thievery or some kind of terrible thing, which becomes now a problem for other people in the tribe. And um, uh so your job as an actor, as an artist, is to understand why the character that you're playing is behaving like they are. It's justification. The script tells you what the character does, and your job is to come up with a reason why. Mm -hmm. It's just as simple as that. It's all about justification. Every human action has a purpose. So you're saying, what is the purpose in this moment? What's my purpose? I need to have a purpose. What Stanislavski brought to the party, I think, his biggest contribution that's lasted is that he became more script-centric. He, he came up with the idea that you could take a script and divide it into bits, and each bit had its own standalone structure, action, objective, obstacle. And so at any given time, a character should be in the middle of some bit. And you say, in this moment, what is a character doing? And as soon as they complete one bit, then they immediately go to the next bit. And, uh, I, and then you add all the bits together and you've got a whole script. You've got a whole story. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, when you work in there, objectives and super objectives and all of this, but, um, uh, to me, that was the main thing that, uh, that the Stanislavski did was, uh, was the script analysis. Um, I agree. I agree. I mean, for me personally, that's the part that helps me the most when I'm working on, on a character the whole thing about super objective and backstory and all that, I'm not saying that they're unnecessary sometimes, but I haven't found them as helpful as just working in the moment with whoever is on stage with exactly. me, reacting to them in the moment with a knowledge that I've already worked on about what is happening in that moment. Although I'm not thinking about it anymore once I'm performing because you can't be doing that either. It has to be in your body and in your mind yeah 
but in turn, I think I think super objective and and all that is is good at the beginning, just so you understand the piece, so that you know why it's there, what 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 its purpose is, what the, what the story is is trying to convey to the audience, but. When you get on stage, you're not going to be thinking about those things. No, it's yeah. it, well, I, I like it as super objective myself is that a super objective is why uh, a person will become a doctor rather than uh, uh, rather than a ballet dancer mm. uh, or, you know, it, it's a, a it, you, 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 it has to do with how you become fulfilled as a person. Um, and a lot of times I find super objective can explain a character's behavior when it doesn't make any sense at all. Yes. Uh, yes. Especially when you see characters that are obsessed, obsessive. But a lot of times a super objective is the only thing that'll explain it. Uh, one example that I use, I don't remember if I've ever used it with you, uh, was uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, Bill Clinton uh, was born poor. Uh, you know, he was uh, basically trailer trash. And he worked his way up in the world. Uh, he became a Fulbright scholar. Uh, he got into politics. He became the governor of a state. He became the president of the United States for two terms. The president of the United States, probably one of the most powerful people in the world. And what did he do? He tossed all of this away in order to have a fling with Monica Lewinsky. And you say, why, if you were acting Bill Clinton, how on earth do you justify that? Do you just say he's horny? Well, if he's horny, he has plenty of opportunity. Uh, there's plenty of women for a powerful person. If you want to go, you don't need to be doing this in the Oval Office with a with an intern. <laughs> you see? Yeah. But, but his super objective, super objective, Bill Clinton, all of the power that he had and as a politician with the governor and being president and all of it, all of that power still did not make him feel good as a man. What he needed to feel good as a man was Monica Lewinsky on her knees, you see. Yeah. And... There's no other explanation that makes any sense why he would have risked his whole presidency for this silly fling. And it was a silly fling. Yeah. He never was serious about her, but she adored him. According to her, she adored him. She really believed he was going to leave his wife and marry her. And as and as, as she was with she was 18 years old or something. So it's uh, 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 the point is only a super objective could really explain why Bill Clinton would have done that. Right. Because his regular work, although it's full of objectives, uh, was not scratching a certain kind of a primal itch. And um, 
anyway, that's just no, and know. and that's great. And like, if you're working on a character or you're trying to understand yourself uh, as that character, that's something that you would definitely want to take into account, and it may color how you um, uh, play certain scenes or say say lines on sure. stage. Um, but in the in the moment you're not going to be thinking about any of those things it's it's no, like the work not. you have to do before in the moment you're going to be in stanislavski's beat there you go yeah in the yeah. bit yeah See? and you fed yourself this other information before and let it and let it percolate in the back of your mind and your subconscious or consciously and exactly. then when you when when you're finally doing the role those things will hopefully show themselves unless you block exactly. them. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you know what one movie going back to what you said before about these Disney films having often having like, or these big budget films having, you know, the first half is for the adults and the second half is for the kids. Yeah. There's always been, and I'm so glad you brought that up because there's a movie and I, and I had some friends back when this movie was made, it was Wall-E. Um, yeah. who were involved in it. And that movie was so much like that. And it stood out to me as uh, I, I could never understand it. I mean, the first half of that movie, I love it's so sure sublime and sort of dark and he's alone and he's wandering through this vast world of nothing. Everyone's dead yep. and we don't know why. And it's so incredible. Yep. And all of a sudden it becomes this stupid thing with obese people in wheelchairs in a spaceship exactly. uh like and then they you're, lost you're, me it's like oh man i just don't like this movie anymore but i the first half i absolutely love it it's one of my favorite animated exactly and, yeah and this is why hollywood has been very slow to actually do adult theme feature animation the japanese have been far ahead on this um I think that Pixar, Pixar changed the whole industry when it brought in computer animation with Toy Story. Toy Story. Pixar, with movies like Wally and Up, had an opportunity to do it again, to actually change the whole industry again. And by then, they were a cog in the Disney machine. Yeah. And they backed away. And that's the reason why you had these hybrid movies. You're right about Wally. First half of it, marvelous. Second half of it, stupid. Yes. It's because it's hybrid. Wow. Yeah. And so I'm still not clear about the hybrid thing. So they want to, they want to cater to both adults and children. Exactly. But beyond that, they want to create a marketing machine where you can go to McDonald's and sell Happy That's Meals right. and get a Broadway show and sell the music, like Little Mermaid, for instance. I have never exactly. seen the film, but I feel like I know everything about Little Mermaid. Sure. And, and because, you know, being in musicals, all the, these young women, they sing the songs from Little Mermaid. They grew up with Little Mermaid. They wear Little Mermaid yep. T-shirts still, even though they're 25 yep. years old. So that's what they're looking for. And then yeah. the adults will bring them in because there is some adult content in there that will keep them from being totally bored and not wanting to bring their yeah. kids to it. Well, what yeah. they do is they 
they, if you look at the character design of mm -hmm. a lot of these movies, uh, the characters are designed to appeal to children. Uh, they have, uh, their eyes are too big, their waists are too little, uh, they, they're, they're colorful, uh, they, there's a lot of stuff about them, which is really designed to be what they call eye candy. Yeah. And, um, but adults don't care as much about eye candy. They care more about relationships and that. So the, really the whole thing is about in Hollywood is about justifying spending that much money because they're not going to spend less than that. They won't spend less than $200 million on a movie. So you said that you can now with today's technology, that's not necessary. Are there people out there making independent animated films that are good that we can find? Sure. Sure. There's yeah. a lot of them that are, uh, that are, that are really good. And also now they're starting to make, uh, things like animated documentaries. Uh, this, uh, this movie, uh, called flea, uh, the, out of, uh, where was it? Denmark, uh, which had to do with, uh, it just got, it was nominated for Academy Awards in three different categories. It was, uh, for best feature, best documentary, and best animated feature, it got. Um, uh, so this is a whole new genre. Okay. Uh, animated documentaries. Uh, the guy in Israel, Ari Folman, he did a movie called Waltz with Bashir, uh, which had to do with Israel's fight in Lebanon. Oh. Uh, and uh, uh, so, the, and, and it was a similar thing—a documentary. Um, uh, but these, uh, these, uh, you don't have to spend, I mean, I think that flea cost, uh, I think it was, what they say, 3 million, 4 million, something like that. Um, you, you don't have to spend $200 million. Uh, you can make a very good movie for 1 million, for, mm -hmm. for 5 million. If you want to really, you don't have to do it. Um, uh, but the, the Hollywood is such a, they're, they're so addicted to the merchandising, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, Flea is an animated film? Yep. I wonder if this is the one I'm looking at at IMDb right here. Barry Williams voices, Barry Williams from, uh, <laughs> what was uh, the, the, the TV show? Uh, what was that show when I was in the kid in the 70s? The, the, well, it's called Flea, F-L-E-E. -E. Oh, I'm looking at the wrong one. It's a different, okay, F-L-E-E. -E. Oh, okay. Ah, I see, 2021. Oh, yeah. okay. Interesting. And it had to wow. do with a guy. It had to do with a guy who's gay and how his family got out of uh, Afghanistan ah. uh, with the Taliban and uh, all of this. And he had to develop, a, he had to lie. He had to lie about who he was. So the movie is all about the Afghanistan uh, struggle, uh, the emergence of the Taliban, and uh, this guy who was struggling with his own sexual identity and orientation. And, um, and they, they mix it in with the, the animation and they, uh, there's also mixed in there uh, clips from actual newsreel footage now and then 
uh, that keeps it anchored in the real world. But it's uh, it's an it's an animated documentary. This looks wonderful. It's a, it has a really good rating on IMDb too. Yeah, yeah. And so does the Ari Fulman's uh, movies uh, that I would recommend to you. Waltz with Bashir is a very good movie. Waltz with Bashir. Okay, I want to check these out. Yeah, uh, I mean, and if you want to go to the extreme here. Um, and you, without even doing the uh, computer animation, um, there's a movie that came out of Brazil called Boy and the World, which I adore. And this movie was made with 35 animators, and it cost $500,000 to make. Um, a man named Ali Abru was the director of that. What was the name of that one? It's called Boy and the World. Okay. All right. Great. Yeah. Yeah. You really have to hunt for these things. Yeah. And Boy <laughs> and the World, I have personally shown that movie all around the world. And, uh, and, and I did an analysis of it and sent it off to Ali Abru, and he approved it. Uh, but that movie, they'll make their money. I mean, I think animated, I think movies should pay for themselves. It's just a matter that, uh, you know, I don't, I think to make, to get into the business or the industry with the prospect of living in Malibu is uh, really kind of crazy. It's just not a reason to be an artist. No, no. And we, and we have, the age of social media and TikTok and Instagram and all, and people, mm -hmm. people now see that as a reasonable goal to become a celebrity. Yeah, of course, of and course. It, it's it's still not reasonable. Yeah, <laughs> it also doesn't serve humanity. Like right. you say, like you say, I I I've always approached this as this is not something to become famous with. This is an art form and I will express it as in whatever way seems to be my path. Um, sure. But, but it's always in your mind though. You see and and I notice I'm influenced now by, by the world and the way it's become. I, I'm, I often think, have I done enough? Have I, have I done the right sure. thing? Should I have moved to LA? Should I have moved to New York? I didn't, I couldn't, I had kids. Did I, did I blow yeah. my chances? And that, and I have to say, I mean, I never used to think that until the the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years when the social media thing has become huge. Yeah. I'm trying to eliminate it now from my life as much as I can because I think it it's insidious. Yeah. It can work its yeah. way into your subconscious and think and you start to think that's the way reality well, what is. They, what they've done, and it's it's another subject, it gets away from from acting, but yeah. I believe that what they've done is they figured out how to monetize anger and fear. Oh yes. Because absolutely. let me just say this about this is that humans are like other kinds of animals in that when we're threatened, we have a deer in the headlights reaction. We freeze. Uh, when we don't know exactly what the threat is, we have to figure it out. And there's a moment in there when you freeze and this freezing trait is what they're capitalizing on with Facebook, uh, with all these other social media. 
And it causes you to not click away. It causes you to stay. It's and, an alarm. It creates an alarm in your body. Yeah, like, it creates, I need to do yeah. something about this. That's right. But you don't yeah. know what to do. Yeah. It just creates, it creates fight or flight and you, you freeze. And then what they do is now they got all these people that are not clicking away from the site. And then they sell the presence of those people to advertisers. So what they, they have a motivation for agitating their customers for keeping their customers in a fight or flight uh, position yeah. of reaction. And to me, this is a terrible drift in um, not only in the American culture, but this is international. And um, I, I, I see it as one of the major problems uh, is that we've monetized fear. Yeah. Even uh, even so, the news organizations, I mean, all of them, you know, it seems like CNN's trying to get back to being real news. But um, yeah, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know, hopefully yeah. things will get better. <laughs> yeah, we hope, we hope. Yeah, yeah. Wow, this has been such a great conversation. I love this. I mean, I, I just love talking yeah. To you. yeah well i think you know i th i think yesterday we were talking at the, you know we were rambling around a bit yeah. i do think and i said in an email to you i think you've got an editing job to do <laughs> i know <laughs> well this one i think was really good yeah yeah but if you but if you edit this i think what you've got out of the four hours that we spent together i think you've actually got a good tight two hours yeah, I think so. It's just a matter of <laughs> sitting down for six hours and doing it. Um, and do, yeah. 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 And once you get it done, let me know. Okay. And uh, I, I, there might be something I can, I can help do with this. Okay. Uh, to get the word out. Cause I think it's, um, I think it's, it's useful for you and I to be talking about st stuff like this. I think so. The only thing is, I find that um, I, I really enjoy doing this, but there are so many podcasts out there, oh, millions, yeah. that to get like a listenership is so difficult. Yeah, uh, I agree. Oh, my gosh. I mean, and you don't it, it becomes start. a full time job just to get people to listen. Yeah. And, what and you I don't do I don't do that. I know. And it's a motivation. See, this is why you get so many of them that try to make fear and anger. Uh, yes. Those are the popular ones. That's right. Because they cause the most eyeballs. Yes. Yeah. When they solve that problem you're talking about. Yeah. You know, people like Alex Jones and all them with they, the conspiracy theories. And uh, uh, by the way, did you know that there is a name for uh, there's a word called apophenia. Do you know what this word? It? No. We, uh, uh, us humans, in addition to being problem-solving creatures, we, uh, we're pattern-seeking creatures. We make patterns even when there's not patterns. Yeah. When you get it, actually the world itself every day is pretty much chaotic. And we look to make patterns all the time. There's a lot of research on this. 
and um, and we make patterns even when patterns don't exist. So this is why people there are some people who have, are convinced that 9/11 was an inside job. I have a friend you know? like that, and you can't convince him otherwise. He thinks I'm crazy for not believing that. Exactly. They they they're convinced of it, and why? Because they see patterns. Yes. And the the word for this for people who find patterns where patterns do not in fact exist, the word is a medical word called apophenia. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Apophenia. So, apophenia is what you call this when somebody finds patterns that don't exist. Well, we all do it to some extent. It's a matter of like, are you recognizing it when you're doing it to yeah, yeah, an yeah. extent that is like ridiculous? Um, I think that we do. I think we all do that to our own detriment sometimes. Like, I know sometimes. I know sometimes. Like, if I'm feeling off or whatever, my mind will start going back in the past and trying to figure out what it is that caused this, and I'll come up with reasons. Sure. And then when I really think about it, it's like I don't know if that's the reason. I mean, that's just my brain trying to make sense of something. Well, that's what your brain does. Yeah. That's exactly the point. Yeah. Your brain does this all, all of the time. Even yeah. in your dreams, your brain does it. Yes. As yeah. a, it, it is part of being human. It's amazing. It's totally we, amazing. Yeah, we are, we are, we seek patterns. There is a, there's a new uh, science fiction book out that I want to read. I don't remember the name of it, but it's, it's we as humanity come into contact with some advanced life form out past Pluto on some spaceship. Mm -hmm. But this advanced life form doesn't seek patterns, doesn't have self-awareness. We assume that our consciousness is what makes us who we are and makes us the most advanced animal on Earth. Yeah, and this this novel apparently challenges that to a huge extent and is somewhat successful whether it's true or not but uh i really want to i really want to find this book i don't remember the name it's an but, interesting premise yeah 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 anyway uh yeah it's that's but that's what i love about that's actually what i love about acting and is we as human beings have this problem. We are self-aware. And, yep. and the arts, and for me, particularly theater and good movies, attempt to not answer the question, but as you say, dramatize our situation in a compressed way. I don't remember the exact words you use. Exactly. Um, to help us overcome our own confusion, pain. Sure. Whatever. Existential angst. Yes. And to me, it does a better job than most religion. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's a religion and theater are the same. Yeah. In this regard. Both of them looking for ways to help the tribe get through the dark night. Yeah. Well, what a great, this has been the greatest conversation. I've had in like years. <laughs> I could listen to you forever. 
Um, well, it's a real pleasure. It's a real d delight for me to, to spend time with you. It really is. And, and we should do it, you know, more often. It's uh, just talk about stuff. Absolutely. Let's do this on a regular basis. And uh, maybe we'll become famous. No, sure. I would like to <laughs> we'll wind up making a movie. Um, yeah, maybe. Um, I want to, I'd love to come out to Lisbon sometime. I mean, yeah. I, we go to Europe every, well, we used to go more often, but we want to go more again. Katie's brother and the rest of her family is still like all around Paris and Versailles. And, mm -hmm. you know, so we go out there. I was out there last summer, but, uh, yeah, it'd be great to visit you there. Sure. Come on yeah. out. It's, okay. uh, Portugal is, uh, once you get past the, uh, the, the, the passport line at the airport, you're you're in good shape. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, the uh, Portugal is a. Uh, it, it, we've been here for five years, and um, it's a very interesting country because it's both old and new at the same time. Because it was it was under uh, kings and dictators until 1974, hmm. and then there was a revolution. Now it's formally a socialist government. But the country, really, if you if you start counting from 1974, it's trying to figure out even now how to govern itself. I see. And 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 the re because it was under kings and dictators, it was a very poor country. Uh, the kings and dictators took all the money. So the the people that lived here, the Portuguese people, learned how to live for, you know. 10 cents on the dollar. And, um, and that's the reason why Portugal became such a good value for expats. They could come over here and um, reduce their cost of living from the United States by 50%, uh, you know, and, and live a pretty good life in a Mediterranean climate. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a bad place to be. And, um, the cost of living is going up, you're getting more people, but uh, it still is compared to the United States, uh, it's something quite different. You know, they don't have, you don't get gun deaths here. Oh. You don't get gun deaths, you don't get a lot of uh, drug overdose. They've decriminalized the uh, drugs, uh, not made them legal, but they're decriminalized. So you don't go to prison for drugs over here. They catch you with drugs. They're going to give you counseling. They're going to, they consider it a medical problem, a health problem. Um, so there's, it's a whole, also that they think healthcare is a, uh, a birthright. Uh, so medical, it's the, they, they say that it's got about the seventh best medical system in the country, in the world, uh, Portugal. And, um, and and it costs less than half of what you spend in the U.S. Uh, so there's a I, lot. I don't know what we're doing here. I mean, I don't know the, the guns, the the drug issues, the sure. We go that you know in Silicon Valley here. I, I, we I, I pretty much only shop online for groceries, like on Thrive, or I go to Costco. You go to Safeway now. I mean, it's going to cost you $6 for a loaf of bread. Really? Yeah, it's terrible. I know. It I even noticed when, when, we were, when I was in um, 
Europe last summer, you know, France isn't very cheap. France is kind of expensive. But then when we went down to Italy, I said, wow, this is, I could live here and uh, sure. spend half the money I'm spending at home and get good stuff. Sure. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's true. It's a, you can get really good stuff. I mean, uh, here, the uh, it's a Mediterranean climate. And so there's a lot of produce, a lot of fruit, a lot of good things that grow around here. And um, they make bread and uh, cheese, a lot of cheese. Uh, it's uh, the, And the wine, the wine is uh, unbelievable. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, wine here that, you know, you, 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 you spend $6 for a bottle of wine that would cost $35 or $40 in uh, California. Wow. Yeah, really good wine. And, uh, and we never, <laughs> we never even knew about that. We never thought about the wine when we moved here. And uh, I never really thought about Portuguese wine. And what I've discovered here was the reason was because the Portuguese people drank it all. It was. Uh, <laughs> they kept it all for themselves. They kept it all for themselves. And um, but once you once you see this, I mean, it's. Uh, they've got like uh, a whole bunch of kind of grapes that only grow here. Uh, and they've been around for a hundred years or more, you know, they, yeah. the, the wines really are quite good. Wow. And, uh, but it's, a, you know, we rent here and, and uh, uh, we're now, we're now paying uh, 1700 for uh, rent we started at twelve hundred. It's gone to seventeen hundred. But in in uh, Culver City, when we lived in Culver City, we were paying over three thousand, and wow. uh, every every month for uh, rent. And um, uh, yeah, so I mean, the, the cost of living is we don't have to have a car. I mean, car a car, it, that right away is another ten thousand dollars. Uh, with gas and servicing and all the things that a car, we don't have to have a car. We just Uber around and, or walk. Do they have good public transportation? Yeah. Yeah. I got good public transportation. Uh, and, uh, and then there's, and then there's, there's Uber. Uh, you could go from one side of Lisbon to the other side for, you know, five, $6. Wow. Yeah. Uber's expensive the, here now. To get to the airport uh, from where I am, yeah, uh, cost twelve, thirteen dollars, something like that. <laughs> yeah, on in an Uber, you see. My son has to uh, go over to De Anza College tonight, and one of our cars is getting service, and my wife's going to be away, and I don't have a car, and we—I guess we have to send him on an Uber. It's like, well, that's going to be expensive. I mean, it's going to cost like thirty-five bucks. That's right. That's right. And then it's so, like going to cost like 50 to 70 bucks for a round trip to, yeah. go, to go to one college class. Yeah, exactly. So here it's really there's so many ways to save money and uh, that you can you can walk uh, every, every place. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it, and, and plus the fact it's it's uh, it's scenic, it's historic. I mean, um, this is Portugal is the oldest country in Europe. And uh, yeah. Yeah. 
I, I walk underneath every day when I go for my power walk. I wonder. I walk underneath the Roman aqueduct that's here, and <laughs> and this sucker, uh, this sucker is uh, over three hundred years old. It's older than the United States. Three thousand years old. Three no three hundred. Oh. one. This the Roman one, aqueduct. Uh, yeah, the, but the yeah, there's one here. There's but it's Roman more than three hundred years old, isn't it? They're older than that too. Oh, okay. around. We've got all through Portugal, you've got uh, ancient, ancient yeah. stuff. I just say this particular aqueduct, okay. I think, dates back 300 years. Oh, okay. But, it, but it's, uh, but I all the time, there's everything on the street is um, old, you know, the buildings. Yeah. Are, That's know. what I love about Europe. I mean, here old is like, let's visit this historic house built in 1820, you know. In, yeah. in in Europe, like ha half the people live in houses built in eighteen twenty. Sure. Um, my my uh, my brother in law, right in front of his house, he has he lives in he has a big like gated thing that opens up automatically. But on the street mm -hmm. is a bridge that Napoleon built, and it says really? it right. This bridge, yeah. Now it's yeah. kind of covered over with concrete and stuff. You can't even tell it's a bridge anymore. But uh, yeah, there's a little plaque. This is the bridge Napoleon built when he was attacking whatever army. I don't know uh, to get to the other side. And the creek is almost gone now. But yeah, yeah, like directly in front of his driveway. Yeah, <laughs> and it's not. It's nice, you know. It makes you feel more anchored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember when we lived in Palo Alto there was a house next door to our apartment and the house, they tore the house down and built a new house. And while they were building the new house, I went over and talked to the workers, you know, when they were building the house. And one day I asked them how long they expected the house to, to survive, to be there, that this mm -hmm. house that they were in the process of building. Mm -hmm. How long do you, I said, when you build a house like this, how long do you expect it to be here before they, tear it down and put another house up and they said oh probably 50 years <laughs> 50 years i mean really people wear shoes older than that here i know well <laughs> I, I live in a house that you could tell they didn't expect them to to be here that long these idlers yeah. i mean they're just put on a concrete slab there's no subfloor there's no attic yeah. Uh, and they're all still here and they're all, we'll have to jury rig everything now to get it to keep working. Um, yeah. There was, yeah. they were not built to last. No, not built yeah. to last. Not I like these, I like these, uh, these areas in Paris, you can walk down and here's the apartment where Robespierre had his idea to chop off everyone's head. And here, you know, it's like, and there's people yeah. living in these, in these places. You know. Yeah, I like that stuff too. I really do. Yeah. Oh well, should get going, I guess. Here. Okay, my friend. Thanks, Ed. You're terrific. Wait. We'll do it again soon. Let me know when you got this thing where we can uh, uh, do something with it. Okay. All right. All right. Thanks, Ed. See you later. Take care. Have a Bye -bye. great day. Bye. When you're